please turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 11. Acts chapter 11, verses 25 through 30. Then Barnabas departed for Tarsus to seek Saul. When he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. So it was that for a whole year they assembled with the church and taught a great many people. And the disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. And in these days, prophets came from Jerusalem to Antioch. Then one of them, named Agabus, stood up and showed by the Spirit that there was going to be a great famine throughout all the world, which also happened in the days of Claudius Caesar. Then the disciples, each according to his ability, determined to send relief to the brethren dwelling in Judea. This they also did and sent it to the elders by the hands of Barnabas and Saul. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you and bless you for the word that we've already heard from the lips of Rodney. We look to you now as I preach this word that you would take my weakness, my frail lips, and that you would, out of weakness, uh, cause your strength to be manifested, that you would be pleased to quicken the word to our hearts and help us to live it out to your glory. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. I think some of you have heard of uh, Charles Tremendous Jones, a very popular speaker. And there is a statement that he has made a number of times that has really stuck with me. He said, you will be the same person five years from now that you are today, except for the books you read and the people with whom you associate. Uh, Maybe a slight overstatement, but uh, we ought not to underestimate the powerful impact that people can have upon our lives. In fact, long after they have died through their books, they can have an impact upon our lives. Some people like dead people better than live people, so they prefer books, but... Uh, We ought not to underestimate either one. We do have an impact upon each other's lives for good uh, or for better. And today I want to finish up last week's sermon. Uh, We were looking at six keys to a positive church. And the six keys is to realize that no one person can do the work alone. Uh, Individually, we all have a ceiling beyond which we cannot go. I know I definitely have a ceiling uh, beyond which I can't go. Um, Rodney and I can try as much as we want, uh, we will not be able to get past our ceiling. Now, we can improve year by year as we really uh, strive, but we do have a ceiling. Now, the point that I want to make this morning is that the ceiling of the church can be raised considerably when there is a synergism of efforts. Let me um, define synergism for you. Synergism is where two or more combined elements, and that's the key word, combined elements, have a stronger effect than the sum of each part. Two or more combined elements have a stronger effect than the sum of each part. And I'll give you some examples. Uh, There can be a thread that is strong enough to hold up one pound, And you might think that if you twine three threads together, it would hold up three pounds, but in reality, it holds up eight or nine pounds. I'll give you another example. Uh, On May 6th of 2007, there's going to be another horse pull in Dubuque, Iowa. And uh, it really is amazing to see the videos of how much these horses can pull. There's different kinds of contests. The one that they have... Uh, There, uh, they pull, depending on what class that they're in, between 2,000 and and 4,500 pounds. And there are other um, uh, horse pulls that I've looked at that have uh, larger amounts of weight that are are being pulled. At this one, there's a specific number of feet that they have to pull it within a specified period of time. Now, the most familiar story that goes around is about a county fair where the first place horse, who was pulling 4,500 pounds, and the second place horse, that uh, was pulling 4,000 pounds, were teamed together to see what they could pull. Now, separately, the two of them pulled together 8,500 pounds, but when they were teamed together, they pulled 12,000 pounds. That's synergism, okay? Uh, Leviticus 26, verse 8 says, Five of you shall chase a hundred... 
and a hundred of you shall put... Now, what would you expect if there was no synergism taking place? If five chase a hundred, that's one per twenty. So, uh, you would expect then that a hundred would chase two thousand. But that's not what the text says. It says, five of you shall chase a hundred, and a hundred of you shall put ten thousand to flight. That is synergism. And there is an excitement when synergism takes place because you are able to accomplish things that you would never have dreamed possible where each individual was just doing their very best. <clears throat> Every thread is important. And I think uh, a church becomes a very positive and a very powerful church when they take into account this principle. No one person can do the work alone. And that... Um, uh, that synergism is very important. Every thread is important. Now, let's look at leaders first. And don't write this off if you are not a church leader because you can apply the principles here to uh, your family leadership. And for that matter, uh, Jones uh, points out that leadership is inescapable. Every one of us engages in leadership at some point or another in our lives. We've seen it with our kids. Our kids lead one another into mischief or they lead each other into good things. Uh, you've seen that. Uh, it happens. And so leadership is uh, unavoidable. The question is, are you a good leader? Are you leading people up or are you dragging them down? Do you have a positive influence or do you have a negative influence? And um, uh, even children can have a positive influence upon the church. And so even though verses 22 through 26 are primarily talking about church leaders, I think there are some lessons every one of us can glean here. Now, the first lesson that we see is that leaders cannot be loners. Now, they might wish that they could be loners, but they cannot be loners. If we were all loners, it'd be a pretty different church. Barnabas worked very well with the apostles as well as with the Jews who were in Jerusalem. He worked very well with the Gentiles in Antioch, and he worked very well with Paul. And uh, Paul here is called Saul. Uh, it's not until later that he's called uh, Paul, and there's a good reason for that. I'll explain that in a little bit, a little bit. but just to keep it non-confusing, I'm going to be referring to him as Paul because I uh, have a hard time switching back and forth on that. But Barnabas associates with the church. He associates with the people that he leads. He isn't buried in his books. He is not a loner. And what is more to the point is that Barnabas is the kind of leader who is not afraid to have strong associates uh, with him. And I find this aspect of leadership very, very interesting. When you examine the whole book of Acts, you compare it with what is described about Paul and Barnabas in the epistles, you come to the very strong conclusion that Paul was a far, far more dominant personality. He was a stronger leader. He was a very capable speaker. Some people take one phrase from Paul and think that he was not a good speaker. But there's lots of indications he was a powerful speaker. In fact, in Acts 14, uh, they call Barnabas Zeus and they call Paul Hermes because of his speech. Hermes was associated with speech. And um, it could have been very intimidating for Barnabas. He could have felt threatened, but he did not. And that is a sign of a very good leader. Andrew Carnegie wanted his epitaph to read, Here lies a man who attracted better people into his service than he was himself. Very interesting statement. Now, I think it takes a great deal of humility to be able to make a statement like that because people want the credit for themselves. But he said, Here lies a man who attracted better people into his service than he was himself. Some of the most successful leaders in the business arena have been people who have uh, brought into their circle people who are far more talented uh, than they were. This is one way that we can raise the ceiling of the church. If everything has to go through the pastor, then the ceiling of the church is going to be limited by whatever the ceiling of that pastor is. But if every member takes on his or her own ministry, then that ceiling is raised exponentially. Does that make sense? And so, in one point, this point here, in one sense, this point is connected very tightly with point number one that we looked at last week. And what is true of the best church leaders should be true in the home as well. Husbands should not be intimidated by wives who excel them 
to a great degree in certain areas. Now, that should not be a blow to their pride. They ought to take great pride and great honor in the fact that they've got associates who are stronger than they are. We ought to feel the same way about children who begin to excel way beyond things that we have been able to do. What we're doing is we're multiplying our influence. It ought to do our hearts uh, good. It assumes a loyalty, of course, but it, it is something that ought to be valued. Now, I've written eight words in your outline that are associated with these kinds of leaders, and I believe every one of these eight words is implied in this passage. The first word is humility. By the way, you're going to see these words are just tightly woven together. Even though I'm distinguishing them, you're going to see you really cannot separate them. Verse 25 says, Then Barnabas departed for Tarsus to seek Paul, uh, Saul. That's Paul's earlier name. Uh, Barnabas has been incredibly successful, but his vision for what could be accomplished and what needs to be accomplished went way beyond what he was able to do on his own. And this also is a sign of a good leader. He's got a vision that goes beyond his own capabilities, forces him to depend upon God, forces him to depend upon the people that God has placed uh, into his lives. And so here you can see the first and the second words are connected. The reason he needs Paul, he's got a great vision, uh, but he has humility. Think about this for a sec. Both were going to be doing teaching together over the next year, but Paul had a reputation concerning teaching that left everybody else uh, in the dust, with the exception maybe of uh, Apollos. Apollos probably was the more skilled uh, speaker uh, between the two. But Paul was an incredibly brilliant man. If you think about what it would have taken for Paul to have been a part of the Sanhedrin, which prior to his becoming a Christian, he was, and what it would have taken to be the star pupil of Gamaliel, you realize this was an incredibly brilliant man. Last year, I did some research on the kind of training that the uh, Pharisees uh, uh, took, uh, took on. They actually copied theirs from the Greeks and they abandoned the biblical method that Jesus used of teaching. But the guys that would have associated with Gamaliel uh, would have had to have an, a, a enormous memories. I'll just give you one example. If you were to memorize word for word the three-volume set uh, commentaries, um, uh, not commentaries, systematic theology by uh, Charles Hodge, the mind that could do that is the kind of mind that would have been associated with Gamaliel. I studied what some of these guys memorized. It just blows my mind. And so Barnabas could very easily have been intimidated on an academic level. Whoa, <laughs> this guy's way beyond me. But he did not. He recognized that he needed Paul in this particular situation that he was working in. And by the way, it not only speaks of the... Of the um, Humility of Barnabas, it speaks of the humility of, of Paul as well. Uh, Paul was ready to be used and not used, however the Lord wanted him to be. By this time, Paul had uh, been disinherited by his family. Uh, Philippians 3, verse 8, uh, he recalled after his conversion that he suffered the loss of all things at this period in his life. And he was willing to be brought down so that he could serve Christ more effectively. And so, Luke doesn't change the name of Saul uh, into Paul yet because Paul, I don't think, has made a name for himself in the church. Uh, he's been around for eight to nine years since his conversion, and he's still not known as the apostle of the Gentiles. And I think that's the reason for the name change. But in this passage, I just want to focus on the humility of Barnabas. He could have been intimidated about the potential for clashing personalities. After all, Paul was not the easiest guy to get along with. I think we all know people who uh, fit that, that are not real easy to get along with. And yet Barnabas had what it took to be able to minister with, side by side with Paul. I'm sure there were times that Paul rubbed him wrongly. In fact, there was a clash that comes up in Acts chapter 15, verse 2, where Barnabas and Paul had to separate ways. Barnab uh, Paul later on acknowledges he was in the wrong on this. But in order to defend Mark, whom Paul was really abusing, Barnabas had to step in and he had to uh, deal with that. But to me, this shows Barnabas has a willingness to put up with a lot. That takes humility. 
Barnabas was the primary leader at this point. His name is listed first. Later on in the book, it's not. But here, he's the team leader. And yet, he must have sensed that he was going to fade and that Paul was going to rise. He knew about the prophecy of Paul and the ministry that he was going to be engaged in, but it didn't make Barnabas in the least bit intimidated or insecure. Uh, in Acts 14, verse 12, from the reaction of the people who called Barnabas Zeus, called Paul uh, Hermes, uh, commentators assume that he must have been the more dignified of the two. Probably had white hair, you know, in many ways. Well, this is the chief guy. He's the honorable one. And, uh, and Paul, the one who was very good with speech. And yet, as much as people respected Barnabas and treated him as a leader in every place that they went, it seems almost immediately Paul is the one who was put into the limelight. He's the one who gets center stage over and over again. And Barnabas was content with that throughout the book of Acts. Both of them are going to face some sacrifices. The sacrifice that uh, Paul was going to face is that he was going to be slandered and abused and persecuted and put to death. So those of you who want the uh, popularity and the uh, limelight, uh, you can count on that happening for you. But there was a sacrifice that Barnabas had to make, and that was the loss of status that he was going to face. Both of them were willing to be used however the Lord wanted them to be used. And so I think they both showed forth a humility. Now, here's what Augustine or Augustine, depending on which part of the country you come from, what he said about humility to the leaders that he was training. If you should ask me, what are the ways of God? I would tell you that the first is humility. The second is humility. And the third is still humility. Not that there are no other precepts to give, but if humility does not precede all that we do, our efforts are fruitless. Do you want to be a great leader? Then what you need to do is allow the Spirit of God to crucify your pride every single day and to receive by faith the resurrection grace of humility because humility is a characteristic that will enable you to do the kinds of things that Barnabas uh, did. A positive leader. Pride causes conflict. Humility sees the best in others. It provides a context in which other people can grow and flourish. Humility helps us to avoid judgmentalism and to have the Barnabas spirit that we looked at last week. Now, we've already touched on vision. When we are burdened with a vision that is greater than ourselves, we are energized by that vision. It drives us. It takes us through even the difficulties that we face. And God has given every one of you a vision that is unique because His calling on each one of your lives is unique. <clears throat> we want to encourage you in the vision that God has given. And it's very, very important not to allow the criticism of others or their cynicism or failures that you've gone through, discouragements with the past to kill that vision. Paul was driven with a vision to reach the Gentiles because this was a part of God's call upon his life. Now, it's been eight to nine years. He still is not known as the apostle of the Gentiles, but Barnabas encourages him in the vision that God has placed upon him. This is what D.L. Moody did with his children. When he was dying, he told his sons, if God be your partner, make your plans big. Does that make sense? If God's your partner, make your plans big. And I want to ask you, is your vision bigger than what you yourself can accomplish? If not, what I would ask you to do is to seek God's face daily until you have a strong sense of the calling that He has placed upon your lives. Everyone has his own unique calling from the Lord. I think of the story of William C. Burns. He was a famous Scottish missionary and, and evangelist in Scotland as well, but he was a missionary to China. I had a very profound influence upon Hudson Taylor and upon uh, Robert Murray McChain. But he had a sense of his calling right from the time that he was a little kid and never deviated from that. He prayed with incredible burden for the lost. Uh, when he was still a little boy, his mother took him to Glasgow one time <clears throat> and they got separated in the crowd and she's frantically looking for him. She found him in an alley with his head buried in his arms, just bawling his eyes out because he had such a broken heart. She, she asked him, what ails you, lad? And he said, oh, mother, mother, 
The thought of these Christless feet on the way to hell breaks my heart. And that drove him his whole life. Um, it's no wonder that he grew up, you know, to be a mighty evangelist. That's what God had put upon his life. And there wasn't anything that could deviate him from that. He was a man of vision. Now, churches without vision become ingrown, become self-serving and filled with critical people. And so one of the things that I would urge you to do, seek God's face until you know what your calling is. Some people's callings are simply to be the most faithful mothers that they can be or businessmen and to do it to God's glory. But know your calling. The third word is discernment. Barnabas thinks through all of the possibilities of who could work best in this city of Antioch. Uh, he could have called for Peter because Peter has already shown that he's, he can work with the Gentiles. But Antioch is such a, a critical, strategic uh, breakthrough into the Gentile world that it really required somebody who had a deep passion for the Gentiles, a calling for them, and Paul was the perfect pick. And whether you're a leader in your family, in business, or in the church, um, you need to ask for divine wisdom so that you can have discernment in the decisions that you make. The fourth word is enrichment. Barnabas does not seek a team member who's a clone of himself. He seeks somebody who can complement his weaknesses as well as his strengths. And Paul was an absolutely perfect complement for Barnabas. Uh, Paul had the ability to break through into situations and to confront tough situations where Barnabas seemed to have a little bit tougher time uh, doing this confrontation. Barnabas, on the other hand, was able to bring healing into a situation that Paul seemed to be completely blind to. Paul himself, you look at Timothy, you look at Titus, you look at the people he surrounded himself with. He did the same strategy. He pulled people that would compliment him on his on his weaknesses. And so um, I have no intention of making you all fit the same mold or, OK, we've got a program. Who can we plug into this program? We want to discern what is God made you for? Now, some husbands and wives are really frustrated with the fact that their wife or their husband is so different from the way they are. Rather than getting frustrated and looking at the glass half full, what I would encourage you to do is say, Lord, why have you made us different? How can I enrich myself by having this, uh, the, the, the differences that are here? Uh, we need enrichment. We certainly don't need clones of Phil Kaiser, right? We need people who are different so that the church will be much more enriched. The fifth word is initiative. Barnabas doesn't wait and hope that new leadership will come along. The Greek word for seek means to investigate, to seek up and down. In fact, it's the same word that was used in Luke 2 where uh, Jesus' parents are frantic trying to find him. They're looking through all of the relatives and through the caravans and going back to Jerusalem. They're intensely searching. And this is what Barnabas did. He was looking for Paul. He took uh, initiative. And I would say the same thing needs to be done by you guys and gals who are wanting to get married. Don't just passively wait, hoping that some great guy or some great gal is going to come to the church. First of all, you need to prepare yourself to be the spouse, the godly spouse that you should be, and then be praying and taking initiative and looking and involve your parents in that. You parents need to take initiative in this whole process. The sixth word is security. And I already dealt with that to some degree under humility. But Barnabas was secure in his role. The less secure you are in Christ, the less positive life will appear to you. The more it's going to seem like everything's going against you. But the deeper your walk with the Lord, the harder it is going to be for Satan to get you down. You'll know that in the worst situations, God is for you. He loves you. You're secure in him. Barnabas did not need to be in center stage in order to be secure. Now, he was for a while uh, on center stage, but he was quite willing to work with Paul in verse 26. When he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. So it was that for a whole year, they assembled with the church and taught a great many people. <coughs> now... <coughs> He didn't bow out simply because Paul was 
in some ways greater, but he wasn't insecure either. Nor did they avoid relationship with others because in verse 26, that phrase assembled with the church shows a deliberate entering into relationships with the people of the congregation. Now, for many, many years, seminaries have taught pastors don't get, in, don't get involved in friendships with people in your congregation. Don't get close to your people. That was crazy advice, but you found it in seminaries all over the place. They didn't want the pastors to get hurt or for people to feel like you know, maybe there was favoritism or anything like that. But it simply does not follow the model that Jesus set up. Jesus was very close with His disciples. It didn't follow the model of the apostles. If you read Acts 20 for yourself sometime, you will see that Paul had an intense love for the people that he ministered to. It was very hard for him. He said it broke his heart when he had to leave them. And here's a guy who's going from place to place, and yet he still got very close and involved in their lives. There was relationship. And I would urge you to have a leadership that is relational. You can't be the leader of your family if you're not relational with your family. Okay, the same is true of the church. Now, relationship by itself is not going to uh, achieve God's purposes. In fact, I've seen assembly make people worse <laughs> rather than better. I've seen a person, you know, he's kind of discouraged. And so he goes to his friend to talk about this discouragement. And they start sharing their war stories and all the problems that are going on. And they go away from that meeting feeling worse than they felt before they came together. Because now it seems like, yeah, the problems are even... Uh, even more difficult than I had originally thought about. And so that is terrible. That is a, a strategy that Satan uses to try to discourage people, to divide between people. So we're talking about the importance of developing positive relationships, not simply relationships. Sometimes relationships can be very destructive, very destructive in the church. Uh, there can be uh, negativism. Complaining, bitterness, anger, discouragement. The Bible says, stay away from an angry man. You know, and it talks about the powerful impact that a negative countenance or a positive countenance can have upon others. Uh, Charles T. Jones said this, The leader is constantly learning to abandon the things that come naturally. And he points out, we always have to be abandoning things that come naturally. He goes on, like discouragement. Discouragement is without a doubt the most expensive luxury we can afford. When I become wealthy, I plan to get discouraged for a week at a time, but I can't afford but a few minutes a day right now. Uh, <laughs> being facetious, okay, he didn't really uh, like that. But anyway, he goes on, most people I know must really be wealthy now for all the discouragement they seem to be enjoying. Sometimes I'm asked if I ever get discouraged, and I reply, yes, often. But I never let anyone know about it. Because if I allow you to know how discouraged I am, you'll become discouraged. You'll discourage me more than I am. And I can't hardly stand how much I have now. So abandon discouragement and all the other attitude killers as you become the leader you are meant to be. So we're talking about a positive relationship. The last word is engagement. Uh, both Barnabas and Paul were constantly engaging with Life. They were willing to try new things. They were willing to follow the Lord into new ventures, into new risks. And this experience with the Gentile church of Antioch, man, that was definitely a new venture for Barnabas. He had never associated with anybody but uh, Jews before. It was a new venture that made him go beyond his comfort zone for Paul as well. Uh, the more varied our experience, the richer will be our leadership. And I hope that this church will benefit over time with the experiences that I have in China and in India. Just one more quote from Charles Jones. You can tell I've been reading from him recently. In the beginning of life, God gives everybody an imaginary key ring. Every time a person exposes himself to another situation, they get another key of experience for their key ring. Soon the key ring begins to fill with thousands and millions of keys of experience. As a person gets exposure and experience, they get to use the same keys over and over again. The law of exposure to experience gets better with the years. Finally, a person gets to know which keys unlock which doors while the inexperienced don't know if they have a key. All they can do is fumble around and hope to add another key of experience to their key ring. And so this is really to honor age. Even though Paul was more gifted than Barnabas, he had to learn a lot from Barnabas. And he defers to the leadership of Barnabas because he had had so much more experience. Now again... 
I need to say that experience by itself does not mature a person. If you are trying, but I, what I would say is if you're trying to avoid experiences because new experiences because you're afraid of failure, then uh, you're never going to grow. I have failed many, many times. And I'm quite free to admit my failures, but I think I've recognized those things so that I can avoid them in the future. But some people are so afraid of failure, they don't try anything new. Let me tell you something. If you have never failed, it's because you've never tried anything great. (laughs) You've never tried anything great. There are some people who love to be armchair critics who can tell everybody else what they are doing wrong, but uh, they never get out of the chair themselves. I love the quote from... President Teddy Roosevelt that Jonathan brought to my attention last week. He said, it is not the critic who counts. And yet it's the critic that many times counts for us, isn't it? It's just like, boy, he takes the wind out of our sails and we just almost like obey that critic. But he says, it's not the critic who counts, nor the man who points out how the strong man stumbled or where the doer of deeds could have done better. The credit belongs to the man who is actually in the arena whose face is marred by the dust and sweat and blood, who strives valiantly, who errs and comes short again and again, who knows the great enthusiasms, the great devotions, and spends himself in a worthy cause, who at best knows in the end the triumph of high achievement, and who at worst, if he fails, at least fails while daring greatly, so that his place shall never be with those cold and timid souls who know neither victory nor defeat." And I think that describes Barnabas and Paul. They dared to try. Yes, they had some defeats, but they also had many uh, victories. They dared to try. They engaged the world. They were not just playing it safe. Leaders with those kinds of characteristics, I think, are much more likely to find a church that's going to dare to be like Antioch. And so point A is that these leaders were willing to work with strong associates. But secondly... Uh, These were leaders who recognized they could not do everything. Churches who believe that the pastor is the be-all and the end-all of ministry not only find the church criticizing them for not doing enough work, but they find these ministers criticizing the congregation and becoming bitter at the congregation. But when both leaders and members know that they have a limited but a very valuable part to play, then everybody is much more likely to value the... the, the, uh, parts of the congregation and to be more positive to each other. We can see that in this passage. First, we see the fivefold offices here. And I'm not going to spend a lot of time on these offices because uh, we've dealt with them extensively earlier. Um, I don't think I need to settle for you the foundational role that Ephesians 2 verse 20 gives to the first two offices of uh, apostle and prophet. We have that foundation in the Bible. So what I want you to do, I just want you'd love for me probably to talk about all the controversial sides of those. Just put the controversy out of your mind and appreciate the body life that is going on as these people relate with each other. And they relate with each other in a way that one individual could not do. Let's go back up to uh, verse 19. Now, those who were scattered after the persecution that arose over Stephen, now who were those people? Chapter 8, verse 1 says it was everyone except for the apostles. So it's not just the official evangelists who were engaged in evangelism. All of the individual people were engaging in that as well. But in verse 20, we find laymen who have a particular knack for going across cross-cultural boundaries. Uh, And verse 21 says the hand of the Lord was with them. Then you've got the office of apostle. Some people see Paul as a big A apostle. Barnabas is a small a apostle. I'm just not going to get into that debate this morning. But the apostles were absolutely foundational to the church, according to Ephesians 2, verse 20. Ephesians 2:20 puts another group into that foundation, prophets. And verses 27 through 28 shows the vital work that the prophets engaged in. They were bringing God's revelation into, into the church to bring encouragement to that church. In this case, it was by way of predicting the future. Uh, Not everybody has the interest in the hard research and the attention to detail that a person with a gift of uh, teaching has. Uh, Preaching for or preparing for preaching or teaching. Man, that's boring to some people. I just can't imagine doing that kind of study. But a guy with a gift of teaching like myself, we love it. We love that preparation. 
even the curiously detailed uh, studiers. Now, I take the gift of pastors in Ephesians as being a reference to elders, and the elders are mentioned there in verse 30. And then, as I've mentioned earlier, it's not just the leaders, but every single member of the congregation that has a part to play in the ministry of that church. In a Peanuts cartoon, Lucy demands uh, that Linus change TV channels and then threatens him with her fist if he does not do so. And he says, what makes you think you can walk right in here and take over? These five fingers, says Lucy. Individually, they are nothing, but when I curl them together like this into a single unit, they form a weapon that is terrible to behold. What channel do you want? (laughs) Asks Linus, and then turning away as she's watching the TV, he looks at his fingers and he says, why can't you guys get organized like that? (laughs) The church would be a terrible weapon to behold against Satan's kingdom if all of the members were organized, doing what every part, according to Ephesians 4, is supposed to be doing. But you know what? The church would be a terrible weapon to behold if they were not only unified within, but they were united church to church outside as well. And that's what point C is about. A positive church relates to other churches even when we don't see eye to eye on everything. Look at verses 29 through 30. Then the disciples, each according to his ability, determined to send relief to the brethren dwelling in Judea. This they also did and sent it to the elders by the hands of Barnabas and Saul. Now, did Antioch and Jerusalem always do things the same way? Absolutely not. The people in Jerusalem ate kosher. These guys ate whatever they wanted to eat. The people in Jerusalem believed you still had to circumcise your children. People in Antioch certainly did not do that. The Jerusalem church had a theology that continued to practice ceremonial law. The Antioch church, we find in the book of Acts, completely had ditched the ceremonial law. Uh, These guys uh, in Jerusalem were looking down on Gentiles. But in Antioch, they were Gentiles, okay? And so they they didn't dress the same, they didn't talk the same, eat the same, watch the same movies. Well, that's not part of the text, but I think you get the point. Theologically, they were different. Socially, culturally, economically, they were different. There was every reason to form a different denomination. And in many ways, they functioned much like um, a denomination within a denomination. We've got a Korean presbytery. I never see these guys or hear from them or know anything that's happening at the General Assembly other than just a small note every year when I've been there. And yet they even believe the same way that we do. What's going on between Jerusalem and Antioch, I think, is much different than what's going on, the difference between the Korean Presbytery and ourselves. Because in Jerusalem, these people thought that the Gentile Christians were sinning by not following the ceremonial laws. Okay, so there's even ethical differences that existed between them. They had all kinds of debates. Some of those debates are recorded in Acts 15, Acts 21, and Galatians 2. And so, to me, it sounds much more like the differences that are existing in the churches uh, here in, in Omaha. And the point is that churches don't have to agree together on everything in order to be united on ministry, in order to bless each other in some ways. Now, on fundamentals, yes, they do need to be agreed. But it isn't until Acts chapter 15 that the church of Jerusalem makes some policies that finally make Gentiles feel a little bit more comfortable. They're not even comfortable being around these Jews at this point in their lives. And yet, they give this incredible gift of finances to the church in Jerusalem. They want to bless that church that has been racist against them. Can you see what's going on? I'm trying to paint this dynamic so you can see it was not an easy thing for them to get together, but they thought it important. Now, I've sought to model such relationships by developing friendships and prayer networks with other evangelical pastors Um, We, on a monthly basis, uh, get together with the other PCA uh, churches in uh, Nebraska. I engage in missions with evangelicals that simply do not agree with me on a number of different uh, areas. And even though this inter-church relationship can be complicated, because you don't want to compromise, right? It can be complicated. It can be difficult. uh, It can be challenging. I think that when churches pursue this kind of a relationship, it helps to dampen the judgmentalism and the overcritically 
uh, critical attitudes that sometimes appear. Now, it's not going to stop it from happening altogether. So don't think this is a magic cure. Jerusalem continued to hassle Antioch for quite some time to come. And Paul comes all unglued against Jerusalem and against Peter. So there still are differences of opinion that go on, but they are striving to have unity in the Lord. When I came to Omaha, there was virtually no fellowship happening between pastors and between churches. There seemed to be a lot of territorialism, and I can see why. It's hard for people to relate with each other and to have friendships when they are so different in their theology and in their practices. It can be very difficult. But you know what happened is the more churches tried to reach out and bless each other, the more that they found the spirit of territorialism, judgmentalism, and isolationism beginning to crumble between them. Now, I do not believe in compromise. So don't even think of this in terms of compromise. In fact, sometimes we'll have uh, fun debates together about some of the things that divide us, but we try to do it in a way that still affirms uh, the other people, like we talked about last week. We're talking about loving and embracing those whom Christ loves and embraces. Okay? It is not honoring to Christ to say, I don't want to have anything to do with a friend of Christ. Christ is friends with them. But if we are not willing to be friends with those whom Christ is friends with, uh, there's something wrong there. Let me give you some examples of how this has happened in this city. Uh, Les Beecham is the pastor of Trinity Interdenominational Church. And some of you know that his wife uh, way back was di- had been diagnosed with uh, cancer. Well, as soon as Liberty Christian um, is it Center or Church, as soon as they found out about it, they sent a box full of red roses and said, had a note in there saying that each rose represents an intercessor that is committed to full-time praying for her healing of that cancer. There was, um, uh, that's an Antiochian church, okay? They're trying to bless a church that's quite different from that. Uh, there was um, Westside Baptist had a special prayer meeting for her during their worship service. Four other pastors went to Big Trinity to pray. Um, I know of another church that shared choir director with another church that had lost their choir director until they could get a new one. They shared their resources. There are many different ways in which the churches have sought to cooperate. And so as we've been developing this key to having a positive church, we're not just saying that no one person can do the work alone. What I am saying is that no one church can do the work alone. Okay, Our vision must be a kingdom vis- vision that transcends our own local church. And if you have that bigger vision, what's going to happen is some of the negativism is going to automatically go by the wayside. And what it's going to do is you're going to to replace it with concern if there is need for concern. And there's plenty of need for concern, okay? So you're going to replace it with concern and prayer and help and constructive dialogue between these churches. And I want us to learn how to appreciate the larger body with all of its warts and bruises and issues. No one church can do the work alone. And there are churches that are not reformed that are doing a fantastic work in Omaha. And I think Omaha would be the poorer if we did not have those churches. For example, there is a church that is having a fantastic impact in penetrating into the homosexual community and saving people out of that and getting them out of that lifestyle. There is another church downtown that uh, has been uh, working and, and, and has managed to get into the gangs and begun bringing people out of those gangs and has been rescuing prostitutes out of their prostitution. You've got to appreciate that. It doesn't matter how many differences that exist. Uh, you know, there are probably just as many differences that I would have with those churches as Antioch had with Jerusalem. And yet I think our attitude should be to praise God and say, Lord, we want to bless them. We want to embrace them. We want to encourage those churches instead of having this isolationism. They disagree with us and therefore we've got to be standoffish with them. <clears throat> if you really understood the degree to which Antioch and Jerusalem were different, it would blow you away that they sent this incredibly generous gift to Jerusalem. What an incredible heart uh, this, these people had. So, to me, it highlights the degree to which Antioch had captured the positive spirit of Barnabas. And so, what I want us to do, I want us officers 
And I want you people to be thinking of a tangible way in which we can bless some other church in Omaha. And especially if it's a church that's doctrinally different from us. Some tangible way in which we can bless them. That's your homework. Okay, one loose end that we haven't dealt with is the phrase in verse 26 that says, And the disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. What's the best antidote to feeling judged? Well, we've already dealt with one excellent antidote. It's to overcome evil with good. You know, send a gift. You know, kill them with kindness. But I think there's another one that's implied in this um, uh, phrase right here. The church in Antioch had to have felt judged by Jerusalem. They just had to. And if you doubt it, just read Acts 15 and Galatians 2. And I think one of the best ways to overcome those bad negative feelings when other people are judging us or to quit the bad, uh, you know, judgmentalism of others is to recognize we all are property of Jesus Christ. And that's what this phrase means. Um, the word Christian is Christianus. It's made up of two words. It's a Greek word, interestingly, mixed with a Latin word. Greek word Christos, which um, means Christ or Messiah, and anus, which is the Latin word meaning belonging to. And so what it means is we are the property of Christ. We are not the master of your faith. Christ is. You are not the master of my faith. Christ is. In Romans 14, verse 4, it says, Who are you to judge another's servant? To his own master he stands or falls. Indeed, he will be made to stand, for God is able to make him stand. And to me, that last phrase is especially encouraging. God knows how to sanctify his people. He knows how to work with his people. But if you once lay hold of that principle that Paul talks about in Romans 14, it will liberate you. Uh, it will it, just be fantastic in your life. If people judge you, you'll be able to calmly say to those people, yeah, now where is that in the Word of God? I'd like to uh, discuss this because my conscience is held captive to the Word of God. And a lot of times critics won't be able to find any verse, you know, to justify their criticism of you. And you can just say, well, if you can find it in the Scripture, please come back to me. I'd love to talk to you about it. Now, if they are able to find it in the Scripture, then you're, you're going to be glad. You're not going to be sad because why? Your heart is held captive to the Word of God, right? And so it is something that just enables you to relate to differences uh, without feeling bent out of shape. So Paul uses the concept in Romans 14 to deal with the issue of a critical spirit. You're much less likely to abuse Christ's property than you are to abuse somebody else's property. And if you can get it in your head, this guy belongs to Christ. He's Christ's property. I better treat him with respect. It'll help how you relate to him. And when he relates poorly to you, you can just go to the Lord and say, Lord, I am a bond slave that has been purchased by you. These guys are stepping all over my rights. And actually, I don't have any rights. You've purchased them. I'm your slave. And if you want these rights protected, I just give it to you, Lord. But please help me to have the spirit of Antioch and to bless people when they curse. If you can have that kind of an attitude, a Christocentric attitude toward each other, I think that will be another factor that will, that will really uh, help. And then finally, there's the critical role of trust that is illustrated in verse 30. They get, gathered together a huge wad of money, give it to the Jerusalem church to bless them, and Barnabas and Saul are trusted with that huge deposit. This they also did and sent it to the elders by the hands of Barnabas and Saul. Could you be trusted with that much money? Barnabas and Saul could definitely be trusted. Warren Bennis rightly says, Trust is the emotional glue that binds followers and leaders together. It's what enables people to take risks in their relationships with each other. It's what enables people to delegate both authority, uh, responsibility and authority. It's what would enable our church to really be effective in the decentralized kind of ministry that we believe in. Uh, trust is important. Now, here's the problem. Trust is like water in a bucket. Now, some people's buckets of trust fill up pretty quickly, like the faucet full, full blast. And others, it's a dripping approach. And over time, people say, you know, that guy does have integrity. That guy really is faithful to Christ. But what happens is when people blow it, 
it's like that bucket gets tipped over and you can't get that trust back into the bucket that easily. Okay, it's not quick to get back in. And each time it is spilled, the longer it takes to fill. And this is one of the reasons you have got to work within your children's lives. Integrity, trust. Uh, I always disciplined my children far more severely if they lied to me than if they had told me the truth. And I tell them that. I say, now, if you told the truth, here's the spanking you would have gotten. Whack, whack. But because you lied to me, you're getting something additional. Seven more whacks. Uh, they learn pretty quickly. It pays to be honest, but you've got to drill that into their consciousnesses. There's got to be honesty. There's got to be integrity. They've got to be people that uh, learn uh, how to trust. And so you put accountability there. You train them. You build hedges all to warrant trust. But I would say if we are to be a positive church, ultimately our trust needs to be in the Lord, doesn't it? Because he's the one who can change us. He's the one who can change other people's hearts. We can just trust him to be able to do that. In fact, Romans 14:4. you read that verse again sometime, you'll see it implies that we're just trusting the Lord, that he can handle the situations we think are so terrible that are out there. And he's motivated uh, to do so. So this whole passage talks about various types of relationships that can affect us positively or negatively. It would have been very easy for the church of Antioch to get bent out of shape, to allow the negativism of Jerusalem to rub off on themselves. Now, to me, that's that brings up one last very important principle, and that is that the onus of responsibility to deal with negativism is not just upon the people who are judgmental. It's also upon the people who are wounded to not be overcome by evil. Uh, the onus of responsibility is on them to not become negative. And so if you have become negative, don't put the blame out there. The blame always needs to come back within and say, Lord, even if they are negative, even if Jerusalem continues to harass us, let us be positive. Help us to have the spirit of Barnabas and Antioch. Let me end with the quote that I started with. Charles Tremendous Jones said, you will be the same person five years from now that you are today, except for the books you read and the people with whom you associate. And so my parting challenge is make the choices of the books you read this coming year and the people that you develop relationships count. Make them count. Amen. Father God, we thank you for your word. I pray that however poorly uh, I have communicated that word, that the principles of your word would sink into our heart, take root and blossom, bear fruit to your glory. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.